0: Thank you worship team, and thank you, Judy, for selecting such incredible songs. If you wonder who works with that, she's worked with that for a long time. Thank you. Catch me if you can. Catch me if you can. It sounds like a playground challenge as kids begin a game of tag. Or the audacious challenge of a teen pursuing an admirer. Catch me if you can. Could be the challenge of a young man racing his hot rod on the city streets. Or the words of a bank robber taking off in a getaway car. Catch Me If You Can was the title of a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's based loosely on the true story about Frank Abagnale Jr., who spent years posing as various people, an airline pilot, an attorney, even a doctor pretending to be what he was not. But mostly, Catch Me If You Can was about stealing. Stealing. Stealing millions of dollars by... Forging checks. The challenge throughout the story was always catch me if you can. If you're not sure what a check is, ask your parents, they'll tell you. <laughs> catch me if, if you can seems to be the philosophy of a lot of people today, from Sam Bankman, company executives, of corrupt CEOs, to day traders of hedge funds on Wall Street. It's all about catch me if you can. If I didn't get caught, I didn't steal anything. Therefore, I did nothing wrong. Stealing. Now, for most of us, when we think about stealing or the prohibition against stealing in God's top 10, we think about old-fashioned burglary, sticking up a 7-Eleven, armed bank robberies, or movies about stealing, like The Heist, or Ocean's 12 or 13, stealing money from casinos, or the bad guys. Gone in 60 seconds, car theft, or... White-collar. Like Robin Hood, these guys steal from the bad and give to the good. And they say, catch me if you can. But stealing is much more than burglary, robbery, or white-collar fraud. Today I want us to look at the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment. Remember, it's God's top ten. It's about relationship. It's about relationship. And this one commandment is... Perhaps very obvious in how we relate to other people. Few of us, fine upstanding citizens that we are, would think for a moment that we are guilty of breaking this commandment. But this commandment was not written to, only to burglars and car thieves, swindlers, armed robbers, and white collar criminals. It was written to us, all of us. Say us, me. Yeah, let's look at "Catch Me If You Can," Exodus twenty, verse fifteen. Just one verse, one phrase. If you remember nothing else, remember this phrase, okay? "You shall not steal." Okay, everybody, repeat that. "You shall not steal." Okay, good. You memorized scripture today. That's good. One verse. (laughs) Let's start with a simple commandment: "You shall not steal." It seems simple enough. The commandment addresses the issue of property. Theft is taking or keeping what is not ours. Maxie Dunham writes: the Bible defends the right to own property, but it also pronounces judgment upon those who injure others in the pursuit of property. Jesus added a second dimension to this command when he said in Mark ten nineteen, "Do not defraud." Now, if we're to understand property rights, what it means to steal, we must first understand the Bible's attitude towards ownership. Ownership. So let's look at Roman numeral two. What are some principles of ownership and property? Principles of ownership and property. In America, we take ownership for granted. Since the beginning of our nation over 200 years ago, Americans were given the right of ownership. One could purchase and own land. Or with the Homestead Act, you could stake a claim, live on it, a section of land, work the land, and then own it, and then it was yours. We have a right to own a home, to own a car, to own your own business, the right to sell your company to the public or to stockholders. We've even owned people in the tragedy of slavery. Many countries in the world have never had and still do not have the right of private ownership. We take it for granted in our country. Until recently, there are many nations. You'll take Russia, China, Eastern Europe, other places that had restrictions on private ownership. The Bible is full of examples of private ownership. We Take the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the Israelites and others in the Old Testament bought and sold property. They owned homes, they owned money, possessions, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, all kinds of animals, silver and gold. And they bought and sold crops. It was uh, an assumption all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. Private ownership was a practice and an assumption. And property and ownership rights were protected by laws. This, the Eighth Commandment and laws in Leviticus, protected property rights. We get to the New Testament. Did that change? No. We also find property rights in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we find people selling property and donating the proceeds. Acts 5.4 speaks about property being owned and the money of sale of that property being at the owner's disposal. There was never a mandate in the older New Testament that dictated that everything was shared equally and to follow Jesus says we give up the rights of private ownership. That was not the case. But there are some deeper truths that we need to see that demonstrate a more fundamental principle and approach to ownership. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says this. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold Together, James 1, says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What does that tell us about ownership? What does it tell us about ownership? First of all, number one, all things were created by God. All things were created by God. Money, possessions, land, time, plants, animals, people, the oceans, the forests, the rivers, all natural resources, everything was created by God. Number two, all things were created for God, for God. All was created for God's purposes, God's use, God's plan. Human nature reacts to this timeless truth. What are the, what are the first words we learn as a baby? I mean, first, Dada, of course, is first. That's always first. But what's, what's the second word our kids learn? And what did we learn? Mine, mine yes. <laughs> mine, mine. We have this concept of ownership. It's mine. We think all things were created for me. It's mine. No. All things were created by God for God. And number three, we find in James 1.17, God is the one who has given us everything we have. God gave it to us. Life Family, children, job, health, homes, businesses, car, money. All possessions were given to us by God. Number four, God gave all these gifts to people. To people. In Genesis 9, 1 to 3, after Noah was on earth again, after after the flood, said, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you Everything. And all the carnivores said, yes. (laughs) Nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. Just, Just don't impose your diet on other people. God gave us everything for our benefit, including the creatures on earth. So all things were created by God. All things were created for God. All good gifts were given by God. And God gave these gifts to people. So. What's our role? What do we play? Who are we? We are stewards. Stewards. Let's talk for a minute about Roman numeral three, the principle of stewardship. Stewardship. A steward is defined as one who manages another's property. I thought I was the owner. No, we're stewards. A steward is one who manages another's property. And if we're going to talk about stealing, we have to determine who the true owner is. The owner is God. The owner is God. We just manage it. God gives it to all of us to steward or manage. Steward and manage. We don't have time to go into the uh, this story. Many of you are are familiar with Matthew 25 14. The man was going on a journey. He's gonna be gone for a while and he gave his servants something to steward or manage while he was gone. He said I'll be back you need to manage this, and he gave one man five bags of gold, another two bags of gold, and one one bag of gold. Okay, five, two, and one. They were given something to steward to take care of. Then he went on a long journey. Then he basically the one who had received five bags of gold went at once, put his money to work, and he gained five more bags. The one with two bags of gold gained two more. The man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. Then it says, after a long time, the master of those servants came, and he wanted to settle accounts, so he met with each one of them. The man who had received five talents, or bags of gold, he, he had produced more. The one of two had produced double, two more. The man of the one had done not, nothing with his. He just kind of hid it in there. And he said... Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you do not sow and gathering where you have not scattered. I was afraid I went out and hid your gold in the ground. Here's which belongs to you. The master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew what I was going to do. Why didn't you put it in the bank and get interest? Then he gave it away. See, the, the story tells the story of what God has given to each one of us. And then went on a long journey, and then someday he'll come back and call to accounts. He gave to each one according to their ability, it says. He settled accounts. Now, this story, note that the ownership of what they were given never changed hands. Never changed hands. The stewards were responsible only to manage manage the money. In the same way, God gives each of us something. Something. He gives each of us something. It's represented here by money or they call it talents or whatever. God has given each of us something. Usually many somethings. God has given many of us many things to manage. The question is not how much have I been given but what am I doing with what I've been given? What am I doing? That's a whole sermon in itself. Basically, but the principle is this. We are stewards, given gifts by God to manage for him. Therefore, since ultimately God owns everything, we simply manage it. All stealing is stealing from God. Okay? You think about that. All stealing is stealing from God. Stealing supplants God's authority to give what he wants to those he chooses. Therefore, all sin is against God. All stealing, the breaking of the Eighth Commandment, is stealing from God. Stealing is taking something from one steward, God's rightful property, possession, given to that steward for, and making it for my own selfish end. Walter Kaiser writes this. He says... The eighth commandment prohibits stealing from either a person or an object. This commandment recognizes that the Lord owns everything in heaven and earth and only he can give it or take it away. So how do we steal? How do we steal? Saying you're getting into dangerous territory now. I know, I know. Does it include more than just physical, observable property and acts? I'd say, yeah. Roman numeral four, we look at some ways we steal. This is not exhaustive, but it's illustrative. How we steal from God? First of all, poor stewardship, poor stewardship. A steward is to manage his master's resources and return them to him. How can we be poor stewards? First of all, number one, poor money management, poor money management, wasting money, borrowing heavily, paying huge interest, carelessness, easy come, easy go, wasting or squandering God's resources. If we squander what God has given us, that that is a way of stealing from God. How about poor property management? Allowing a house to get run down. Abusing and not taking care of God's material gifts. We get bicycles, clothes, equipment, cars. How do we treat those? Do we treat them well? Now we say, I bought it, therefore I can do what I please with them. No, (laughs) we bought it with what God gave us, with money given us. Poor stewardship does not bring a return to God. Now, I know clothes wear out, they go out of style. Cars break down, cars wear out eventually, but are we being good stewards of what God has given us in the material realm? Then there's poor people management, poor people management, abuse of children, abuse of one's spouse or family. We can invest wisely in our families or we can abuse, defraud and actually steal from our family. We can rob them of the love and care that they deserve. There's a guy named Jim who attended a marriage seminar on communication. And Jim and his wife listened to the instructor declare, it is essential that husbands and wives know the things that are important to each other. You need to know what's important to each other. And he addressed the men. He said, for instance, can you name your wife's favorite flower? Can you name your wife's favorite flower? And Jim leaned over and touched his wife's arm gently and whispered, Pillsbury all purpose, isn't it? The rest of the story is not very pleasant. You see, you know. <laughs> Poor stewardship. Carelessness. Indifference. What do I give back to God? The second way we can steal is, let her be, defraud people. Defraud people. How can we defraud people? In Colossians 3 22 through 4 1, it says, Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not. Only when their eye is on you, encourage their favor, but with sincerity of heart, reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone that does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, Paul is writing to a society that practiced slavery. He never condoned slavery. He acknowledged that it was there. But he basically, how does this apply in today's world? Anyone over whom you have power, an employee, somebody you supervise, that's someone that you have power over. And anyone who has power over you, an employer, supervisor, boss, etc. And no, just just say. One thing here, because it's hot-button issue. Slavery was not so much of a racial issue back then as a political issue. Country A wins the war, and country B gets enslaved by them. Okay, that, That's kind of, whoever won the war was in charge at that time. We, we've made it a whole different thing. But the slavery is not an issue here. The question is, how can we steal from or defraud people? If you're an employee, okay, as an employee, we can steal or defraud by not working for all the wages we get paid. We get a full day's pay for less than a full day's work. Cheating on our time sheets, taking longer breaks than allowed, not putting in a full day's work, not earning hard to earn our wages, submitting mileage or reimbursement claims that are too high to get more money, padding our expense account, there's lots of creative ways that we can steal as an employee. How about the employer? Hey, on the other side. How can an employer steal? By not paying your employee what he or she is worth. Pay what they're worth. Defrauding them of fair wages is stealing from your employee. Joy Davidman, Davidman writes this. Owning capital and employing labor are not theft." unless we fail to treat the laborer as worthy of his hire. Thus, making a profit is not theft unless we make it by usury or some other form of defrauding others. Thus, taxation is not theft unless the government fails to return to us in services and benefits and protection the equivalent of what it takes away. Somebody said, just be glad the government doesn't... What's the word I'm thinking of? Just be thankful you don't get all the government you pay for. That's, that, was the, that was a quote. Some people look at that and they say, and, and do governments defraud? Yes. Do people defraud the government? Yes. Pay the taxes. The thief is not only he who steals my purse, but also he who steals my trade. He who underpays me and he who overcharges me. He who taxes me for his own advantage instead of mine. He who sells me trash instead of honest goods. And the ultimate form of theft, undoubtedly, she writes, is slaveholding, which denies a man even the ownership of his own body. That's where Joy Davidman addresses the issue of slavery. How do we steal? Letter C, selling worthless goods. Selling worthless goods. How many have been been called on by at least one salesman in the last year? Phone, email, internet, and you got worthless goods. Anybody? Okay, yeah. It, it does happen. Now, I'm not talking about honest salespeople because we have honest salespeople. Some will justify their actions with this type of stealing by saying, they decided to buy it, not me. Or trying to get something for nothing. So what happens. Davidman writes, a bitter man once said the great American dream was getting something for nothing. Getting something for nothing has insensibly become for many the only possible way of making a living. It's not only the unemployed and unemployable who drain the nation's wealth and give nothing in return. All performers of worthless work do that, even if they work themselves to death about it. Business methods, letter D. Paying employees cash or under the table to avoid paying taxes. Is that what everybody's about, avoiding taxes? Legally, okay. I spoke on this commandment in Washington and one of my members, I found out later, was paying immigrant workers under the table to avoid paying taxes. I had no idea. I didn't know. He had, he had some great employees and he was paying them cash under the table. Three months later, he came into my office and said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said... Um, I just wanted to know and that, that that message you spoke three months ago really spoke to me. I've been paying my employees under the table, not paying taxes. And he said, I decided to change that. So he said, I put them all on what they needed to be done and they took care of all of that. And he said, you know what happened? He said, my business has tripled. He honored God by not stealing And God honored him and his business just exploded. More than he could handle. That's his story, okay? God blessed him for operating honestly. And I I know we can make a case for not paying our taxes since so much is wasted by the government. But that's what elections are about. That's all I'll say about elections, okay? Maxie Dunham writes this. He says, one of the tragedies of our day is how The justice system treats the crimes of stealing. Poor people with no money to hire legal defense waste away in prisons for stealing a car or television while officers of a huge corporate organization preside in posh boardrooms, though it is proven they have manipulated the stock market. We see it all around us. Defense contract cost overruns, steal millions of tax dollars, $600 paid by the government for a hammer that should be five bucks, $28 for screws that should cost 10 cents. Yeah. Remember, stealing is a sin against God. And our government acts in that way. A lot of people act in that way. ours Our job is to be honest with our dealings. Stealing is a sin against God because it betrays our trust in him. It's a sin against humankind because it denies love and concern for others. Those are just some of the ways. Another another way, letter E, plagiarism, plagiarism. Stealing someone else's writing and saying it's yours. There are copyright violations. There could be a stealing of a reputation. We can steal the good name of someone by malicious gossip or by just remaining silent Withholding a word that can preserve their reputation. I didn't want to get involved. I don't want to say anything. We can actually steal a reputation. Dignity, whether it's slavery, servanthood, subjugation, financial bondage, laws in the Old Testament have a lot of laws against usury and high interest. Of course, we think in terms of a loan shark who says 10% a day if you don't pay, and send Jimmy Neck to break your leg. And that's, that happens. People get caught up in that. Okay, let's talk about bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, oh, okay. Larry Burkett in his series, How to Manage Your Money, asked the question, is it scriptural to claim bankruptcy? It seems logical that if someone has incurred excessive debts and has truly changed an attitude, they should be able to start fresh. And that's, that's why the, the laws are there. Bankruptcy is legal, okay? It is. But there are many things that are legal that aren't necessarily moral, okay? Bankruptcy has legitimate issues. There's a moral case to be made for declaring bankruptcy. Medical bills, unexpected crisis. Business goes south. And there are all kinds of reasons and justifications for legal, moral bankruptcy. So I'm not speaking against that. But caution, because many actions are legal, but not moral. Legal, but not moral. The, I know of one fine, upstanding Christian man who is behind on all his bills. And he's getting ready to prepare to declare bankruptcy. said, so, you know what he did? He told me. He said, I went out and charged thousands of dollars on items on my credit cards, maxed them out, including a big brand new big screen TV, sound system, did all of that stuff, and then I filed for bankruptcy. Wow. Legal? Maybe. Moral? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are other people who have just declared bankruptcy many times over, justifying it because it's legal. I also know of a Christian who was forced into bankruptcy and still spent the next years paying his creditors back, even though he had no legal obligation. And God blessed him in incredible ways when he did that. I can't can't tell you what you should do in that. But you pray, if you're in that situation, say, God, what is it that you've called me to do? How do I do this? Keeping extra change. That's another way. We don't do that very often. We don't use cash anymore, do we? Well, some do. How about buying merchandise you know is stolen? That can happen. We do that. Letter L. Stealing another husband or wife. We'll be covering more of that in a couple weeks. Stealing someone's job or livelihood. All of these sins of stealing against our fellow man are really against God because Sin is ultimately against God. And one final way of stealing, letter N, in, tithes and offerings. Whoa, is that in there? No, oh, tithes and offerings. Malachi 3. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have not turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. You ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? It says in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And this is the only place in the Bible that says this. Test me in this. Oh, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I didn't say that. God said that. He said, test me in this. Try me. Try it out. It's amazing what God can do. Now, I dislike trying to get people to do things for negative reasons. If you don't do this, this happens. You get punished. Um, We once hosted a Christian psychologist to teach a parenting seminar. This is a parenting seminar. And this is what he said. One of the things that I remember... He said, in dealing with discipline of children, he said this, and this could vary a little bit, but his opinion was, children under the age of three or four do not understand the reasons for discipline and punishment. They they cannot comprehend the reasons for yes or no. He said, reasoning with children at young ages just does not work. Children of that age obey to avoid punishment. They do not have the mental capability to comprehend the reasons. So if you see a mother of a two-year-old trying to reason with them in the grocery store, yeah, just pray for them, okay? (laughs) It's hard trying to explain the reason that the stuff in that candy bar is bad for you and this is going to do this and it's it's got sugar and it's got... Corn syrup has got all this other stuff, and so it's bad. No, they're not going to understand that. Children of that age obey to avoid punishment. They don't have the mental capacity. However, as children mature and grow older, they begin to understand. The yes and no are there to protect them, to train them, and to teach them right and wrong for their own good. So why do we obey God? Why do we follow God's top 10? Is it to avoid punishment? Huh, maybe. If our reasons for obeying God are to avoid discipline, we are young and immature in our faith. We obey God because God knows best. It's for our own good. We do not have to necessarily understand. God said it, I'm going to obey it. But as we grow and mature spiritually, We no longer obey God's 10 commandments to avoid punishment. We obey God because we love God and we trust God. Big difference, big difference. We want to obey God because we trust that it is for our good, the good of our family, good of society. If we take the prohibitions of the 10 commandments in a negative way, we are immature, lacking in understanding and comprehension. God's top ten, including the Eighth Commandment, are given to us for our protection, society's protection, and our health and well-being. They are no more negative than the command of telling your two-year-old not to touch that hot barbecue grill. We tell them to protect them. The commandments are therefore very positive, in their intent. Catch me if you can. You shall not steal. Sometimes we transgress this command. The good news, again, is that God set these standards that's for our good, and if we transgress them, he had a a reason to send Jesus to pay the penalty for our failure to keep God's top ten perfectly. Romans 7, 7. I love this passage. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Covet." We don't receive God's approval or acceptance by keeping his top ten perfectly. Our right standing in relationship comes through accepting his way to God. His way to God. That means accepting the restoration of relationship, confessing and repenting and turning to God by faith and receiving his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And then, out of love for God, we keep God's top ten. It's all a difference in motivation. God knew that we would be unable to perfectly keep his ten. So he said, I got a plan. In the Old Testament, it was blood of bulls and goats and lambs that were killed to pay for the sin. But he said, the Lamb of God, one day is going to come. Jesus and he's going to die for everybody's sin once and for all. And he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's always the good news that we keep before us, forgiveness. Catch me if you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us guidelines and that they're for our good, it's for our family's good, it's for society's good, it's for relationships. It's about relationship with you and relationship with our fellow human beings. And I pray God as we look at, at these commandments that you would continue to anoint us. We, we're not powerless. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside each one of us that have received Jesus so we can keep these commandments out of love for you, and the law is written on our hearts, it becomes who we are because of your Holy Spirit, writing it on our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us godly people that live out who you are in your character. And we thank you in Jesus' name.